Did you know that in the late 1600s, a small group of ordinary people rose up against the establishment and changed society forever? The world called them pirates, but these pirates didn't just break the rules, they rewrote them. They didn't just reject society, they reinvented it. Pirate crews created equal pay, equal say, workplace compensation and even same-sex marriage. In the face of industrial-scale disruption, global conflict and an uncertain future, the pirates of the golden age weren't quite the villains that Disney would have you believe. Welcome to our Be More Pirate podcast. I'm Alex Barker. And I'm Sam Conniff. In 2018, my first book, Be More Pirate, was published by Penguin Random House. After 20 years working with young creatives, the book was an outlet for my frustrations and a quest for some new role models who could capture the spirit of rebellion I knew we so desperately need to tackle the big challenges ahead. And I found it in Pirates. The book then became something far bigger than I ever expected. Be More Pirate is now a global movement of people and organisations taking a stand to update the rules, systems and business models that are no longer fit for purpose. And I went from being Sam's right-hand pirate to leading this community and writing a second book to tell their story. So if you, like so many in our crew, find yourself dissatisfied with the status quo, then this podcast is here to give you permission to do things differently. We'll be interviewing some of the best pirates out there people who really live their values and are willing to stick their head above the parapet for the greater good. We'll tackle some uncomfortable conversation topics and delve into what it really takes to break and rewrite the rules today. Today on the podcast, we're delighted to have Math Potts, founder of the Camarados Movement, and Petrina Douglas, an active Camarado based in Middlesbrough. A Camarado is halfway between a stranger and a friend, people who meet just to be alongside each other, in good times and bad, with no agenda and absolutely no fixing. It's a social movement with a very simple suggestion. The answer to our problems is each other. Math had previously spent much of his career tackling homelessness. He's worked both frontline and in leadership positions running the largest homeless services in the country. He started Camarados in 2015 to address the way he felt the system was failing people. The Camarados are passionate about biscuits, drinking tea and fairy lights, And in doing so, they challenge so much of the status quo about how to support people when they're struggling, making them a pirate movement through and through. We hope you enjoy. Math and Petrina, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Really looking forward to having a conversation about Camarados. Welcome. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Very proud to be a pirate. <laughs> yeah, there's such a crossover between camarados and pirates, which is obviously a big reason why I wanted to have you guys on. There's so many of our pirates who consider themselves camarados as well. So yeah, I wanted to just start by asking you a bit about what camarados is and how did it all come about? Where did the idea first come from? Well, I've got this book here. It's it's pink and some guy wrote it, God knows, some loser, and it's called Be More Pirate. And on page 113... It actually says, despite current ads and slogans, the world doesn't change one person at a time. It changes when networks of relationships form amongst people who share a common cause and a vision of what's possible. And it goes on. And actually, you know what? Those aren't your words, Sam. They're Margaret Wheatley's, which I think you were quoting. And I was, in fact, sat at this desk that I'm sat at right now and decided to start a social movement in my bedroom because after 20 years working very much knee deep in the sector, of social justice, I realized that this quote was in fact true, that I wasn't going to make any changes where I was, despite 
convincing myself the more important I got being a chief exec of charities and housing associations and running more hostels and day centers and rehabs and all that than anybody else. Even advising the government and all the things that are supposed to make you very important and able to make change didn't actually do that. Basically, what Sam says in his book kind of happened to me, really. I just thought, I've got to do this another way. I would love to say it was a massive choice. It was also the fact I became an unemployable nuisance. I mean, nobody really wanted to work with me anymore. And I I was sort of spat out by the sector as well. So I don't want to suggest this was some day of vision where I plucked the apple of opportunity from the tree. I was also kicked out, really. So um, it was kind of all that was left to me to do. So, yeah. I didn't really get anywhere until I got together with my mate Jenny and uh, every pirate ship needs a captain. Met Jenny and she's the boss who runs Camarados now and we have a pirate crew and I guess we have a pirate fleet now of Camarados and um, yeah, we've been doing that for about the last five, six years. And using a movement approach, I kind of did the organisation approach for 20 years and it didn't work. So that's why really. I remember hearing about you and I remember your reputation and I remember being a bit, I wouldn't use the word scared, but I definitely, you know, you were formidable. You know, you didn't want to be on the wrong side of math pots. And I, I always felt like a bit of an imposter in that scene and sector anyway. But it really chimes with me that kind of the, the partially frustration and partially rejection to then go and find a different way of making change. But before I let you off that part of the story, because you did, you know, you were chief exec and you went from, you know, household name to really, you know, incredible organizations. Why doesn't it change? Why does the business of change so often trip itself up you know having been right at the heart of it and at the head of it and now stepped outside of it do you think it's fixable because we're not alone you know this pirate movement is full of people like us who are so frustrated by it is the only way of changing it to step outside of it oh i really didn't want to sam in fact there were 180,000 charities in the uk we don't need another new one so i definitely wanted to stay and fix the ones that were in it it was just eventually i just got too many scars, I think, and it, it, it took too many chunks out of me, personally as well. Spending Father's Day in the spare room of my friend's house, not seeing my kids because I was completely overwhelmed by work, not because I was being kicked out for having an affair, but because I was just burnt out by work. It kind of, you know, eventually I realised I wasn't... I'm sure there are some people who can change it from within, and, and, and I know some of them, and I absolutely am in awe of them. It just stopped being me. I couldn't do it anymore. It really makes me laugh to think I was formidable. I thought I was useless. <laughs> I had a different take on it. I, I thought I was a loser because I, I just failed, failed and failed and failed. And so um, I had to get out, really. I'm sure it is possible, but I, I just wasn't the guy to do it. And Petrina, what does it mean to you to be a camarado? Like, why did you come to the movement and how does it represent something different to you? I came to the movement because I'm incredibly nosy and I was in my local park and somebody had set up some sofas and and a, a, a lamp and a table. And, and when you see that in the middle of the local park, surely you go and have a look and find out what the hell they're doing because that's not normal behaviour. And so that's what I did and went over and they told me about this thing called Camarados that just sounded really lovely. And I thought that sounds like something I could help with that, you know, I can give to. And so we started, me and my husband started going along and thinking we could help, we could do a thing. And it really turned out not to be that way at all. It turned out that actually I got so much more from it than I felt I ever put in. And that's still the case to this day. I feel like I get more from it than I ever put in. And everyone that I've spoken to that's involved with it feels the same. And it's something that's just bigger than the parts that make it up. 
there is a phrase there. My brain won't tell me what that is right now. Um, <laughs> and it was just the idea that you could come along, be involved if you wanted to or not, and that was fine. There was no compulsion. You didn't have to. It was just something that was just there if you needed it. And that really, really appealed to me, mostly because I have to be completely honest, because I'm always, I, I can't be anything other often in these things. I suffer a lot with anxiety and, and have done for a number of years. And that wasn't any pressure, made it so different to anything else. Nobody was expecting anything of me. Nobody wanted to make sure that I was doing better this week than last week. I didn't have to fill in a form that rated my mental health before I went. And then after I'd finished, I didn't have to do any of those things. I just had to turn up and have a couple with somebody. And that was all it was. And that was what made the difference for me. It was just that. Yeah, I remember the first time I heard Math say, this is an agenda-free zone. And I was like, oh my God, I've never heard anyone declare such a revolution. <laughs> well, you don't know, <laughs> seriously. People don't say what are the outcomes here. And for me as well, when I look at the bigger problem of capitalism, it's like, the, it's the antithesis. It's the antithesis to the problem of growth that we have that is always pushed and pulled by measurements and the next stage of the process and are just allowing you to be where you are. And as you've said, Petrina, like the fact that you then weirdly become more than the sum of your parts. I just started reading a book called Culture Code, which starts with that as an opening line. Why is it that some groups are more than the sum of their parts and some are less? And how do you get there? And it talks about sort of the conversation that happens underneath the conversation in so many groups. And the fact that when you're in Camarado space, there's no pretense. So you can have the real conversation that in so many other spaces you can't have. You have this wonderful kind of, well, I think of it as a pirate code, the six principles of being yeah. a Camarado. And also, Petrina, you've, just for the people who might not know, what you explained with the lamp and the, and the fairy lights and everything in the park is a public living room, which is just a space that anyone can set up in a public space and just come and anyone can come and be there. How do the principles kind of work in practice? Well, I really love this idea that's part of the pirate code. I'm very excited about that. It happened by accident. Everything we've done genuinely has been powered by mistakes. We, we gave things a go and they didn't work out. We don't do business plans, really. We just do it on Monday, make an arse of it on Tuesday, do it again on Wednesday, cock it up, put the kettle on on Thursday and carry on. So we, we just opened a public living room and sort of watched what happened. Much to our surprise, people turned up and started doing weird things because humans are weird. We're heavily programmed into things. And people walked in and the most common question they asked was, who's in charge? And then the second question was, what are the rules? We're just drenched in hierarchy and systems that we can't imagine that there's no catch. So we thought, oh, wow. <laughs> okay. And, and actually, cliques started to form. You know, this is our table, not yours. And I mean, honestly, weird shit started happening. So we brought out these principles, really, and just to kind of try and help people take the layers of this programming off and remember what's there already. I mean, I just want to say for the record, we're not innovative or disruptive in the least. And I'm sick of people phoning me up wanting to give me an award for something. Because if human connection is innovative, then we're all screwed. This stuff is stuff we all know, we've just forgotten. So the principles were about no fixing was is, is a really big one for us. And I think this is the principle that might answer the question I forgot to answer from Sam before, which is why doesn't the system change? Because the system's so determined to fix you. They're like Coldplay, fix you. That's all they want to do. You know, they're so intense about it that it drives all these really bad behaviours. 
and it produces a needs and risk assessment. You know, when you're having a really shit day, let's think of the things you don't want to see, you know, a list of your needs and what risk you pose. So no fixing, no outcomes, no agenda is a massive way to build trust, connect with someone. And hey, guess what? They start talking about all the ways they can change their life. Whereas before they've brought a drawbridge down and the last bloody thing they're going to do is share with you anything they're going to do to change their life. So take fixing off the table. That's one principle. There's another five. I don't want to bore you with them, but there were just ways to build trust and understanding amongst people. Very obvious stuff. But amazingly, the human experience has forgotten them. One that I really love most, well, I've heard me say this on more than one occasion, but it's if someone is struggling, ask them to help you. Now, this is so counterintuitive because you, you want to come, you want to make things okay. But actually, when you open yourself up and actually I'm struggling with this, you take the focus off their problems because when you concentrate on something, you turn it from a from a molehill into a mountain. You make this massive kind of thing of it. And when you take somebody's attention off that mountain, it kind of settles back down again. And, you know, it sort of shakes the ground a bit and you make it back down into this molehill. And then it's, they can deal with it afterwards because they've managed to do something for someone else. They've been, they've, they've, yeah. you know, and often if I've sort of run math and said, I'm often really struggling, this happens. Half an hour later, I'll get an email. Mate, could you just? And he's just, he's, he's, I know exactly what will happen if I say to him, look, I'm struggling. He's like, can you just do this? And actually, that's what I need because I need somebody to go, no, actually, it's okay because you might feel like you can't do a lot. So with my anxiety, currently, I am very much stuck in the house unless I'm out with my husband. I can't leave the house on my own at the moment. But my asking me to do this makes me think, no, I've got a purpose here. I could do something. I could talk about something. You know, I can I can help somebody out. I might be stuck in these four walls, but this is something I can do from those four walls. So I might not be outside, but I have, I've still got relevance. And <laughs> it works that way when I ask somebody to help me. That helps them too. But also it makes me more vulnerable, which makes me more human to them. And it makes it more mutual and not a sort of very benevolent thing, which I think can be a, a hindrance more than a healthy. God, it's so good to hear. You're both talking about, you know, well-known, like ancient wisdom. You give strength to, to, to get strength. But, and I understand why you'd reject the label of innovation when you're talking about human connection. But there is a degree of innovation to it. And one of the things that really stands out as to what you're doing, like if we're trying to not get labelled and put it back to the human, is just telling the truth. Like really, really frankly telling the truth in a way that's so like you're doing, you do it in such a charming way that it feels surprising and then disarming. And then wait a minute, we're just actually having a grown up, honest adult to adult conversation with a sense of humor attached. And that is, you know, pretty fucking innovative when you're talking about the world in which we are. And my guess, and what I'd kind of like to explore a little bit is, you know, you're absolutely right. If you're not having a good day, then a risk and needs assessment is, is ne was never designed to help. But it was never designed to help. And that's what I, I still get fixated on with the, the industry of social change, because it's not designed towards redundancy. It's not designed to putting itself out of business. It's designed to perpetuate its own organization, which then in turn means it's perpetuating the problem. And at some like deep, honest level, those of us who've been through any kind of services realize that I'm now a part of the product. And the success of this system is for me to move from part of this to, to part here. It's very rarely do actually anyone want me off this merry-go-round. And then if you can't have that as an honest conversation, then you're becoming part of the lie. And then once you're all subconsciously part of the lie, you perpetuate it. So you showing up with this kind of frankness, I find 
going to call it innovative. I find deeply refreshing. Like, and and the, the, sorry, the point of the question, which isn't really a question, is I think this is fundamental to like leadership in the 21st century. And I don't mean like the classic leadership that you were talking about, Matt. Really, I talk, I'm talking about the leadership that you're talking about, Petrina, like doing the difficult thing and then having the nerve to tell others about it so they might be able to follow in your footsteps. Being fucking just frank and honest, I think is really clear 21st century leader skill because what it really gets to is the place where you say, I don't know. And that's what I so love about that bit of the story. Like, you have the nerve to say you don't know, but you believe you can work it out together. I think it's pretty amazing. To pick up on that, what I'm interested in as a, maybe it's an observation. I think it, it was off the back of the blog you wrote, Math, around why Camarados doesn't participate fully in Mental Health Awareness Week in the way that maybe would be expected of you. But one of the points that struck me was around language, because we talk about that in our book. I've heard lots of people in healthcare services talk about the kind of language that is used and how dehumanizing it is, and yet continue to use it. And this strange aversion to making seem like quite small human interventions that could make a massive difference. And I think, I, you know, just to highlight the statistic that you wrote about in your blog, that you had a public living room in an NHS hospital which when you put up a Camarados sign and said, come in, relax and get to know people, you had like a thousand visitors. And then when you switched it to, when the hospital management switched it to, it's time to talk hashtag mental health awareness week, it went down by 96% of visitation, showing the aversion that people have to being kind of pathologized. And that's such an easy thing to change. I mean, it is the simplest thing to just switch a word. And, and decide to talk about something in a different way. And yet I find these small human interventions, which we often try to introduce when, in, when we're doing workshops and things, it's almost like it's too simple, you know? And that doesn't seem to sit with what we think change should feel like and look like. I can't work it out. So I suppose <laughs> I'm asking you, why is it that the small human things that you have nailed, basically, in Camarados, doesn't seem to manage to translate into services? You might be right. My mind goes back to a, a fairly shocking day in Whitehall when I was invited in because the minister had had some thoughts and wanted to take a sounding from the sector. And I sat around the table with the great and the good, so-called, of which in those days I was one of the chief execs in that number and we were sat around and um, they had decided that the best way to end youth homelessness was a payment by results scheme that paid um, people who on the length of tenancy and if they got an MVQ and if they got those two things if they stayed in their tenancy and they got an MVQ then they weren't homeless anymore and that was success and I just posited the idea that perhaps a network of supportive relationships was pretty key to the young person because that's what's going to sustain them in their arc out of chaos and maybe we could look at trying to get them some friends basically the whole meeting erupted into into laughter and a very respected person there said, oh, yeah, Math, we'll get them all on Match.com, get them a date. And everyone laughed and laughed and laughed at me. And they said, anyway, seriously, listen, back to the matter in hand. And, and, and I said, hold on a second, folks. If you want to spend a lot of money achieving absolutely nothing, I think you're all doing a great job. You're going about it. But, you know, if you want to make a dent on homelessness, you've got to look at relationships. And then someone I really liked and respected turned around and put me in a box by saying, Math, you just can't measure it. It's just very difficult to measure. And it was like, so let's not do it then, the thing that works, because we can't count it. 
Now, that's one of the biggest problems we have. Julian Corner from Lankelly Chase puts it brilliantly when he says, there's a pyramid where at the top you've got the board and basically everything has to be put into a board paper and the chairman can see whether it's working or not. So the entire system is ultimately designed all the way down to the person to provide data for the next step up until you get the board paper. Instead of the system being upside down, focusing on what the person needs, and then the bloody chair and the board can sort themselves out, but you know, and figure it out. But we produce data for the top of the pyramid instead of producing support and help for the people at the bottom. So it's a, it's a cockeyed system. I think part of it is a cultural thing, really, in that up in the northeast of England, things can get quite tough. A lot of people have realised that unless they do something themselves, it's not going to happen. We can't wait for the council for the services that be to come and sort us out because it will be waiting until Kingdom Come. You know, it's just not going to happen. Yes, they do a lot of good things. They have a lot of great ideas. They have their own way of doing things. But if we want stuff to happen for more people at ground level, as it were, then we have to do it ourselves. And I think there was already that general thought within a number of people in Middlesbrough and Camarad has happened to hit the, a number of those people who were very willing just to get up, pick it up and run with it. I think I said to Matt fairly recently because he was trying to tell us that we'd all created Camarados and I said, no, you created Camarados. We just picked it up and ran off with it in weird and wonderful directions um, that he wasn't expecting. You know, so we just sort of get on and do stuff because if we wait for people to remember that we're in the, generally, not with Camarados, but if we wait for people to remember that we're up here in the northeast, we'll be waiting forever. So you've just got to get on and do it. <laughs> yeah. And I think that was the general feeling anyway with a, a number of people that were up here. And so it just hit at exactly the right time. I would just say one thing, Sam, in terms of tone, one of our principles is about having fun and to be silly is to be human. Uh, we have this independent council of movement members and they meet every now and again to hold our feet to the fire. And we had a meeting with them yesterday and uh, they want to change the name of that principle to be more stupid because they think that having fun is a, like a quite often used in people's values as have fun and it doesn't translate. But camaraderie are sort of stupid and I suppose we are. But I guess the point is, is we're trying to say, look, human existence is pretty absurd anyway. Let's drop the barriers and talk about it. And so I suppose we're sort of deadly serious about the fun thing. I mean, when, when people are at the edge of life, they're not really thinking about a lot of things the system thinks they're thinking about. You know, they're, they're, they want to laugh, you know, because being in grinding poverty or mental health hell isn't fun. So is it such rocket science that you want a custard cream and hear a joke? <laughs> Absolutely. And sometimes when I hear the word fun, it dredges up these memories of when fun, you know, organized fun that has been wheeled into my department at work. And when the culture's really bad, and then you're like, well, now you're just going to have some fun and play with some Lego something. And not no disrespect to Lego serious play, because I think that can be, actually be very effective <laughs> and done in the right context. But when it's not the right context, it's horrendous. And semantically, it can just get a bit overused as something that yeah. and it doesn't resonate in the same way i was chatting to a lovely guy yesterday whose brand is professional weirdos and i thought that was much better because he i was like it's a bit beyond fun isn't it because it's really quite weird what you're doing <laughs> but yeah it brings out that stupidity you folks must get this all the time right 
because you're fantastically mad and stupid sometimes. I mean, I, I've seen Sam speak and I was in a room full of very suited so-called respectable corporate folk. And I think they were a little bit shocked by some of the stuff you put up on the board. I was sitting there wetting myself at the back of the room. But you know what this is like. You want to get people to think and jolt them out of, you know, there's a lot of jargon which kind of just papers over the cracks of what we really need to be talking about. And you folks are the same. You position it as a, as a, as a interesting paradox, you know, being serious about having fun. Or what I think you're really good at is being serious about having the sense of humor. And like Petrina says, the first thing she saw was this like, what is this? Is this that? But even as you describe it, there's a sense of humor and a sense of the absurd putting the living room in the park and then with all the kind of additions that make it feel even more kind of the cartoon image of it. But it's true, right? I mean, the research I was looking at the other day about around a thing called negativity bias, the amount of information that comes to the human body and brain, and because we're so programmed to protect ourselves from a you know system designed for thousands of years, ago the negativity bias is around 200 in one our natural predisposition is nine to one to for survival but at the start of the 21st century psychologists reckon it's 200 to one which means if there's 1400 minutes in a day there's only seven and a half minutes when you're not assuming nah this is going to be fucking terrible and so seven and a half minutes when you think oh maybe this could be good now if you're under any kind of stress or in poverty or have got like that can only contract right and one of the few things that can snap a human being out of it, like you said, is a surprise or a positive surprise or all the endorphins and everything that comes out of, of, of laughter. And yet I can say that. We know that. You're nodding. And yet we're not serious about it. And as soon as you start talking about fun, you're either discredited or it turns into organized fun. And actually, you're like, you know, aggressively pursuing making people laugh. It just, you know, you, you really got to get quite out there. So how do you hold on to that? Because you do exist in very serious places and you are working with people who are having an extremely tough time. And Trina, it must be also be the case that sometimes it doesn't feel appropriate to be made to laugh. Like if we're going to get people to be serious about having a sense of humor, there's, a, there's, there's also a judgment and appropriateness kind of conversation that has to come with it. Or are you just balls out? It's always good to make someone laugh. That stopped them. <laughs> there, was a lot, there was a lot in that. There's a lot to process there. Give me a moment. <laughs> I would say most of the time there's a, a lass that um, used to come to Spoon Room but can't at the moment because of time zones and things and she was amazing at turning a conversation and making people laugh so I remember being in a Spoon Room with her and we went from talking about the death of somebody's best friend to kids cartoon TV characters within about three sentences and it felt entirely appropriate she had an incredible gift that I'm not that good. I'm a bit clumsier than that. So for me, I have to be a lot more careful sometimes. If you're having a really deep conversation, you can't just go, oh, look, an eagle and change the topic. It doesn't work. You can't just suddenly sort of crack a joke. Everything's okay. That's kind of not what the having fun is about, but it's about being real with people. It's about being human with people. And that isn't just the having fun. It's also the being serious with people and sitting alongside them in their times when they're not feeling great. So to have someone sit next to you and go, yeah, it's all a bit shit, isn't it? It's actually so restoring. And it can often be that step so that then you can go and have fun. Just be acknowledge the fact that actually this is rubbish. This is quite frankly just a pile of crap and none of us want to be here, but this is where we are. And to have somebody say, I see where you are and yes, I agree it's crap can be that step you need to then have fun. So I think there's yes. room for, for both within it. Yeah. 
I would like to say that it doesn't get the credit it deserves because that just acknowledgement is is enough, you know. The system's so obsessed with solving that it doesn't see that as enough, but it but it really is. One confounding thing has been we've been with some camarados who have not made it. And I think very specifically about one young lad who'd been in and out of prison most of his life and he once told me his only ambition was to live longer than his mum and dad who both died at 35 from drugs and um, he didn't because uh, we found him in a mate's uh, house on a couch having taken an accidental overdose and he didn't know anyone because he'd been in and out of prison all his life and his parents are dead so I, I was one of the pallbearers believe it or not and uh, at his funeral went into the crematorium there's hardly anybody in the creme and uh, I remember sitting there thinking well, you know, what's the bloody point of what we're doing then? You know, I'm sat in a crematorium burying a camarado, you know? <laughs> well, you know, we can say all our principles and all this, but this hasn't worked. And I was very cross. And he was such a lovely guy. And then I opened the order of service of the funeral. And the only pictures that he had were pictures from the last two years hanging out with people in the movement. And there were just pictures of him playing frisbee in the park, having pizza, uh, pissing about down by the seaside just full of camarados that he'd met from across the country. And I thought, you know what? Even if you don't get out of the shit, at least you're not alone when you're in it. And at least it's a bit nicer. And maybe that's what you can hope for. And that's not so bad, right? That's not so bad. I often think that, certainly with the saddest stories, there's no greater tragedy than a life half-lived, you know, even death. That's such a lovely way of putting it, Matt. One thing that has occurred to me as I've thought about Camarados, and I would definitely say that at times I've had resistance to engaging with humans, strangers, because of being aware of a tendency to get too involved and the pressure that comes with caring too much and taking that on board emotionally. And sometimes it is easier to just say, I can't or and walk away. And I feel that that's what professionalism does. It sort of shuts down the human barriers because it's just easier on people emotionally to some degree. But then that's obviously gone, it's gone way too far. I suppose what I'd like to understand is how do you support people in, in that way where if you were alongside that young man who ended up dying, how do you support people through the emotional toll of, you know, not trying to fix them at all, but caring deeply about these people? And ensuring that, that, you know, that people don't take on too much and that when people do need extra support, that you can point them to someone else, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've lots to say on this, but I know that Petrina has very personal experience about kind of, if you don't mind me saying, Petrina, kind of, you said earlier, you don't leave the house sometimes. And I thought your reaction to the pandemic and isolation and, and being with people and getting involved in people, that was quite a shock to me, your response to it. I just wondered if you can share that a little, but I would love to say something about what Alex just said about getting too involved. Just over a year ago, when we all got shut in our houses and couldn't go out anywhere, my mental health improved dramatically. I went from being highly depressed, very anxious, to suddenly, for the first time, and as long as I could remember, being clear-headed and able to think straight. And my God, life's easier when you can think straight. And sorry, I might get quite emotional now because I'm at the tail end of it now because we're all going back out there and the reverse is now happening. So it's quite emotional to talk about last summer when I was actually in a really good place. And it just felt there was something very ironic about the fact that because I couldn't see people, I was in a place where I'd have been able to cope with seeing people. But actually, 
what I realised was that part of the reason I find it so difficult to be out with people is because I take on everybody's everything, emotions, anxieties, and I absorb it. And so suddenly not having to talk to people all the time, not having to think I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do the other, meant that those pressures were lifted. This might sound very counter to what camaraderie is, which is to be alongside people. But actually what it made me do is step back and realise that there was a difference between being alongside somebody and picking up their problem. And they had to carry their problem. I don't have to carry it. I think also that when you come to, and you've mentioned Spoon Room, and just for anyone listening, Spoon Room is essentially a, a virtual public living room. When we hit the pandemic, a camarado in Berlin got in touch with us and said, look, um, I run my business online. Let me help you create an online version. And so we created this space where strangers come onto a Zoom call with a spoon. And uh, it's a bit silly, which also breaks the ice. Uh, but uh, you, you get three minutes with the spoon to speak. And when you want to interrupt, you wave your spoon because Zoom can be a bit of a nightmare. So you just wave your spoon and then you know to speak. People have started decorating their spoons. They bring a teaspoon if they're not too happy, a spaghetti spoon if they're happy, that kind of thing. It's become like a a thing. But that spoon room that Petrina comes to, you know, without fail every week is an hour where she gets to be alongside people for a period of time and there's no fixing. So she doesn't have to take on board everybody's problems. And she has some human contact, I would say, Petrina, without having to solve anything. And to be honest with you, this wasn't our idea. I kind of figured out that friends and purpose was the meaning of life, right? And it's what was missing from all the services that I'd been visiting upon people for 20 years, right? So I knew camaraders needed to be about friends and purpose, but it wasn't until we started hitting the road and doing it that we started learning what friends meant. And it's everything you just talked about, Alex. I mean, you you put it brilliantly. A lot of people don't get involved in things because they think, oh no, I'm going to have to be here all day and I'm going to have to sort them out and all of that. So they don't do anything. So what we need is essentially what a guy told me in Blackpool, a fella called Wayne, six foot four, looks a bit like the butler in the Adams family, quite a terrifying fella, bald head, quite a scary guy. He's had a life, I can tell you. And in one of his spells out of prison, he was in our public living room and we overheard him say to someone, listen, fellow, I'm not your friend, but I'm your camarado, okay? I've got your back. And we were like, what's that? So we bought him a cup of tea and said, what do you mean? Why, why can't he be your friend? And he said, uh, Maff, he said, come on. Being a friend, you know, you got to sort your friends out. You got to do everything for them. You got to fix them. You got to make sure they're okay. He said, "What I need is someone just alongside me for ten minutes, who's got my back, looks out for me. I look out for them. Bosh, no pressure, no obligation. On you go." And I said, "Right." And he said, "It's a camarado." Now, this was the first time it had been used as a noun. Okay, it was the name of our company. Okay, it was a proper noun at that point. Uh, he used it as a noun, and I said, "What's the definition then of a camarado?" And he said, "Well, it's halfway between a stranger and a friend, isn't it?" Bang! Like straight out of his mouth. So we quickly wrote that down, you know, call it co-production if you like. I think it's just uh, called uh, eavesdropping and picking up good ideas and stealing them from other people. And that's what we did. Is there anything either of you have learned? They're both such beautiful stories and that's such a great line and, you know, all credit to him. But staying there is really hard. 
Like that's a healthy place to stay, right? Especially if you're working with someone or you're not in the best state of mind yourself. You know, you don't want to lose contact and we've all kind of done that and isolate or we've all found ourselves trying to save and fix everyone or get fixed. Like in your day-to-day lives, there must be so much of that push and pull. I mean, do you do anything like that other people can pick up? Like, I don't know, from breath work to whatever. How do you try and stay in the space between stranger and friend with all of that magnetism and push and pull around you to go both of the other ways? No, I have to be honest and say I don't think you do. I think when you spend a lot of time with somebody, you become friends with them. It moves from being camarado. However, when you've developed a friendship started in camarados, you've started from a place of knowing that there's no fixing. You've started from a place of knowing that, you know, if you're struggling, someone will ask you to give them a hand or you can ask them to give you a hand if, if they're struggling. And you come at friendship from a different direction, which makes it more sustainable than the idea of having to be there constantly for somebody because they're your mate, because they're your friend. And so the relationships I've developed from camaraders have a different feel. They're still fabulous, fabulous friendships, but they've got a very different feel to friendships I've developed in other places. So this goes back to something you said earlier on, and you both had a different take on it. So I wonder what both of your takes are. And again, the thought of being practical, you, you talked about leadership getting out of the way. And I think it's quite an easy thing to say, but actually there's depth and complexity behind that. Because I think the classic model of leadership is a bit like saviour complex. And it's a bit like, oh, what are all the problems around here? I need to be important and justify myself and I'll fix everyone's problems. And then often what you can do is perpetuate people's inability to solve problems. So like from a practical point of view, from a leadership perspective, you know, and, and everybody, whoever you are, has an aspect of leadership in their lives. So can we talk about like math as an example of leadership getting out of the way with some practical, like how do you actually do that? And Petrina, maybe you could start in the spirit of getting math out of the way. Yeah, I'll certainly give it a go. The thing that leapt out with me as you were talking was, well, there's several public living rooms in Middlesbrough, all run by various people at various times in various ways and in various places. The one I'm involved with is in a coffee shop and it, it used to meet every every week in there. We'd, we'd get together, you know, people came in, we had an arrangement with the coffee shop and we, you know, we'd sort them out of coffee and whatever. And, and then there was a couple of weeks where I wasn't going to be here and someone said to me, oh, well, what are we doing? Are we still meeting? I said, I've no idea. Do you want to? It's up to you. Crack on if you want to. And so I've no idea what's happening if people are meeting. I just attend the same as you do. To their credit, they went, oh, yeah, no, that makes sense. That works. And arranged to meet. And actually, they've started to arrange to meet again as things are starting to open up, despite the fact I can't get there at the moment. They have arranged to meet up and are starting to meet without me, meaning that although I started it, it doesn't need me to be there. And in fact, it's probably doing better without me there. So, yeah. I just had to say, I can't do it. I'm not doing it. I'm not there this week for them to go, oh, okay. Then if we want to do it, we've got to do it. And they got up and they did it. Yeah, I'd say in an organisation perspective, that's like, don't arrange cover. Just don't. Because that's our obsession that you get when you're in work. They're like, better arrange cover for my very important role when I'm on holiday. Just don't, you know. And they just let people do the stuff in your absence. 
I found that when I was leaving Liberty, I was so completely caught up in my own self-importance. And, and really what it was, was my ego was completely caught up in Liberty. And I create this year-long strategy for, for handing over to the incoming CEO, like a year. I mean, come on, you twat. And I, I concluded at the end of it, it would have been much better if I'd been hit by a bus on day one, like, and she would have been able to get on with her job <laughs> without <laughs> half a year of me oh, dear. in the way. I've seen it so often, time and time again, in places that people say, oh, but I can't stop doing it. Nobody, else, There's nobody else to take over. And, I mean, I can re- even remember saying as a teenager to someone, well, of course there's no one to take over. You're doing it. Yeah, yeah. And it's true, if you don't do it, somebody else will. If it needs to be done, someone else will get up and do it. If it doesn't yeah. need to be done, then really, you're probably wasting your time doing it anyway, and then you can let go of that and do something more productive. Math, is it an active strategy from your part or are you just easily distracted? <laughs> no, I am the very worst at this. I am the worst fixer in the world. And uh, I think uh, my wife uh, did point out to me that perhaps I've uh, set up a social movement based on all the things I'm crap at. Fixing is my thing. And I spent 20 years doing the saviour thing. Uh, and um, even worse, I'm a Catholic, so I had to feel guilty about it while I was doing it. So I would go to all the places that really needed me and were really bad. So I went where all the bad energy was and tried to save everyone. I'm here to tell you that does not work. Uh, go where the good energy is and the good people are, and you get so much more done. Who would have thunk it? Two years into Camarados, uh, Jenny, um, and this is why you must always have a, a pirate captain around. Um, Jenny uh, sat me down and said, um, darling, uh, everybody hates you. And I said, oh, really? And she said, yes, I'm sorry, sweetie, but um, you're pissing everybody off. And basically um, she called out, Classic founder syndrome. I had an opinion on everything 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I expressed it. And I thought it was so useful to everybody. And it wasn't. So Jenny became chief exec. I stepped absolutely out of operational control. She runs the team, runs the lot. And uh, I do my thing. And it works absolutely brilliantly because I love her to death. So I want her to be the best chief exec and back her up. And she asks my opinion all the time. So that works really, really well. And so I kind of had to give up leadership because I was not doing it. I like to think back in the old days, servant leadership was my thing. But when it's your own thing, when it's your baby and you've created it, it has a different flavor and it had a corrosive flavor for me. And I was the problem. Listen, I'm a bit of a nightmare. I take up far too much oxygen in a room and it stops other people speaking. And the the, the thing I, I slightly hate is I really want to be around everyone all the time, but um, quite often... Well, no, pretty much always better things happen when I'm not there. So um, I, it's it's tough, though. I, I'm not saying this is easy. I do I have a huge amount of my own personal identity and approbation from being around people and doing it. And so not being allowed to be involved hurts sometimes. I'll be straight about it. I'm not saying I've got this nailed. It pisses me off. I want to be in every public living room all the time, every day, with everybody. And uh, yes, I am crazy. Sorry. The final question I wanted to ask you both as we sign off is obviously adore the principle of I'm a bit shit sometimes. I think of it often, particularly when I look around my living room and think about all the things I haven't done, which I've left for like years and how bad I am at adulting, even though I, <laughs> in some ways people are like, you so, you know, you've done so well. And I'm like, well, <laughs> so what is something that is a bit shit that you have done recently? Well, that's easy for me. I forgot to tell Petrina about the podcast. <laughs> so she's here by a miracle somehow. 
which is really shit of me since she's doing it kindly and it's not the easiest thing to do. So <laughs> there you go. That's my thing. Well, I'm very grateful that you are here. I'm starting to study and I have an assignment due in imminently. And so today, instead of sitting and doing the assignment, what I've done is played with some new software on my laptop because obviously that's going to help me ultimately in my studies. But in actual fact, what I should have been doing was the work that's due in imminently. And so, yeah, I, I, I'm very good at procrastinating. So I have been procrastinating like a good one today. <laughs> Come on, Alex, you must have done something. Um. I just constantly do things like I'm not very good at sorting out anything to do with home stuff. Like I leave things for endlessly long periods of time. My dishwasher's broken again. I only fixed it a month ago. And basically I've just done the exact same thing he told me not to do last time around by just shoving things in the dishwasher without cleaning them. And I know it's not, you know, it's obviously not a big, big deal, but um, I just can't, I can't solve like basic house things. I will be thinking about something completely different while I'm doing anything around my environment. So I don't pay any attention and then things break very often and easily. And I just look yeah. at my front balcony here. It's just, I get, I just. No, it's, it's character. It's character. Honestly, you know, I used to have uh, two spillages and a breakage every day. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. But your mind is on high, higher things, Alex. I mean, you know. I need as a 1950s housewife. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. I think it's, it's not on higher so things. I've <laughs> just been listening to music, you know. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it's like I've got two buttons just falling off my coat. Am I ever going to replace them? Probably not. That sort of stuff, no. you know. And I know it's they're not big deals, but um, yeah, absolutely love how that principle plays out with people and get some great stories from our pirates as well. This has been such a pleasure to have you both. I know our pirates and the audience will really love to hear this and I'm, I'm hearing that it's it's reaching a few people who aren't perhaps in you know part of our network which is really great I really want to be able to show other fantastic piratical leaders and crews and hope that it reaches beyond our usual circles that's the idea of the podcast anyway and it's been wonderful to hear both of your stories thanks for asking us we're chuffed aren't we Petrina absolutely Thank you for tuning in today. Our hope with this podcast is that each time it might inspire a few more people to realise that the way things are is not the way they have to be, and that maybe it's time for you to step up and take that leap into the unknown. If you like what you heard, then please consider subscribing to the podcast on the platform of your choice. Even better, leave us a review, let us know who you'd like us to interview next, or of course just tell us how you're being more pirate. We are first and foremost a community, so we'd really love to hear from you. Go to at Be More Pirate on Instagram or Twitter or visit bemorepirate.com. See you next time. Yeah.